This is Planetary Radio. Hello, everyone. I'm Matt Kaplan. Space Shuttle Columbia carried scores of scientific experiments. When tragedy struck, it was assumed those experiments were lost, along with the heroes that accompanied them high above the Earth. Now it appears the impossible may have happened. We'll talk with Lou Friedman of the Planetary Society and David Warmflash, co-principal investigator for one of those experiments. They are at the Kennedy Space Center, and they have quite a tale to tell. Later we'll talk with Bruce Betts about what's up, First, though, here's an encore presentation of Q&A with Emily. I'll be back in just a minute. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, I heard that it actually rains diamonds on Neptune. Is that true? How? We asked Laura Benedetti, who published the Diamonds on Neptune story in Science Magazine, to answer the question. Yes, it's probably true that diamonds rained on Neptune at least early in its history, and possibly still today. The atmospheres of both Uranus and Neptune contain methane, a simple molecule containing carbon. The conditions deep inside these planets are extreme, with very high pressures due to the weight of overlying material and very high temperatures left over from the gravitational energy of planetary formation. In laboratory experiments simulating these extreme conditions, methane becomes unstable and breaks down, and pure carbon is formed as diamond. If the same reaction occurs in the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune, the resulting diamonds would drop like rain or hail, or maybe like grains of sand sinking to the ocean floor. What other weird environments exist in our solar system? Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out. We are not quite live, but almost so, talking with Lou Friedman, and he is at Cape Canaveral. Uh, Lou, exa- where are you exactly? Well, we're on the Kennedy Space Center at the Operations and Checkout Building, or the ONC Building, as it's called. And what is happening with the GOBS experiment? Well, it's a uh, remarkable piece of news that we got uh, several weeks ago uh, that the uh, experiment uh, that we sponsored on the Columbia flight, uh, the shuttle Columbia flight, uh, was recovered. And uh, indeed, uh, we're here today uh, with the science team, uh, and including uh, David Warmflash uh, and uh, uh, Dr. Aaron Schenker from uh, Israel, to uh, recover the experiment. Uh, it was recovered from shuttle uh, debris. It was, uh, of course, uh, taken care of by the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. They have allowed the experimenters now to uh, recover their experiments from the, their samples from the experiment box. So we're uh, here at the ONC building, uh, and as I speak, uh, there's uh, one team that's uh, pulling the block out of the box that it was carried on the shuttle with, and another team uh, of uh, scientists who are uh, ready to try and pull their samples out of that block itself. And I take it that um, although the the carrier for the experiment appeared to be in reasonably good shape, there is some damage uh, to the interior? Well, uh, as we look at the uh, ca- the box that it was carried in, uh, 
uh, it's integral. It's certainly a whole box. Uh, it's got a lot of heat damage, and uh, uh, and so it's um, uh, we didn't know, uh, and we don't know exactly what the conditions are inside the experiment. Uh, but as they opened the box, uh, which took a lot of work because it wasn't uh, all aligned, there had been some damage from the impact as well as from the heat. Uh, but as they opened the box, it did look like the things inside of it were, uh, again, whole, which was the good news, but uh, clearly had been shifted and damaged, and uh, there was some bending of the metal, and uh, that's why it's not quite very easy to open up the box. And uh, whereas we hoped... Uh, Matt, to be able to give you a complete report today on what we found in the experiment. We can't do that yet because we literally are in the process right now of uh, uh, just trying to figure out uh, what, uh, what has survived inside the, inside the experiment. Now, we should mention that as we speak, it's, uh, it's Monday afternoon where you are in Florida. And really, this has all just happened, what, over the last couple of hours? That's right. Work began this morning at about uh, uh, 9 o'clock when the uh, person from the ITA company who is responsible for this commercial payload, uh, this uh, Gobbs was included as part of a commercial payload uh, on, the, uh, on the experiment. He went over and recovered, got the shuttle experiment itself from the people who were uh, taking charge of the shuttle debris, brought it over uh, to the laboratory here at the uh, ONC building. Could you maybe review for us this rather, I mean, really nearly miraculous uh, uh, recovery of this experiment? Uh, we will, in a few minutes, uh, talk to Dr. David Warmflash, who we've spoken to a couple of previous times on the program. He is one of the principal investigators. But maybe, Lou, if you could take us through how it was that the investigators and the society learned that this experiment might be recovered. Well, it is a remarkable story. First of all, uh, we thank uh, Dr. Warmflash for actually bringing it to the Planetary Society's attention uh, and then uh, having us sponsor the experiment. And the particular thing that intrigued us, too, was uh, enabling uh, students for peace participation uh, to bring a uh, Palestinian and Israeli student onto the experiment team and be part of the analysis. And they now get uh, basically a chance to, uh, to do that experiment, whereas they thought that all was lost. And I can tell you those students are uh, overjoyed at this opportunity. It's a bittersweet opportunity, of course, because nothing will erase the tragedy. Of, uh, of Columbia. It was quite by chance that um, both uh, several of the people involved, uh, including ITA people and, uh, and also Dr. Shanker, noticed that uh, this experiment survived when they were looking at pictures of debris. And uh, through the efforts of uh, many people, including uh, both uh, Warmflash and Shanker and ITA, uh, they made inquiries to the uh, accident board uh, to get permission to uh, recover this experiment, and that permission has result resulted uh, in uh, basically arrangements being made about a week ago. Uh, come down here. You can have your experiment. Uh, uh, we'll give it to you. This kind of a, a result, this kind of a recovery is, as far as I know, unprecedented, although we have heard about another experiment uh, that um, may also uh, have been recovered uh, from the shuttle Columbia. That's right. There was an experiment uh, with actually uh, living worms on them uh, that uh, turned out to have been recovered, uh, and also that those experimenters got their science back uh, this week as well. So... Um, 
it is miraculous. It's a, a very, very small part of the whole story of Columbia, of course. But the work of science and space exploration goes on uh, through uh, through many uh, triumphs and many tragedies. And uh, and this has been true in history. This is one tiny little story in the whole scheme of science. But uh, for those people involved now, it is it is one that is as graphical as any of the other uh, major triumphs and tragedies. I wonder if you've thought about the meaning of this, the fact that uh, there may be some uh, tangible research results uh, from that mission, which is otherwise ended as such a disaster. Well, that's that's true, of course, Matt. But um, but I can tell you, I think that was a statement you could have made even independent of this experiment uh, or any recovered experiment. Mm. Uh, the course of space exploration and the course of scientific inquiry goes on. You learn from your errors and problems and mistakes and accidents uh, as you learn from uh, uh, results and knowledge and discoveries. So I think the statement uh, that we recover uh, something uh, uh, when all otherwise is lost uh, could be made in either case. Lou, in a couple of minutes, uh, we'll take a break, and then we'll come back and talk with Dr. David Warmflash. But I want to give you a chance, even though you're not ready to talk about the results of it yet, to at least uh, mention a, uh, a workshop that the Planetary Society co-sponsored with a couple of other uh, very prestigious agencies, which is actually looking at what, what follows uh, the Columbia disaster. Well, Planetary Society is devoted to the future of human space exploration, and in particular, human exploration beyond Earth orbit. We've been stuck in Earth orbit for some 20 years. It's uh, time to be uh, uh, looking uh, to send humans uh, on real exploratory ventures, uh, and that's basically the whole rationale for, for uh, why the public supports a space program. So the Planetary Society joined with the Association of Space Explorers and the American Astronautical Society in sponsoring a workshop on the future of human space transportation for such exploration. And uh, uh, we will have uh, results uh, that I think will be uh, maybe a little controversial, but uh, they'll be with uh, one objective that everyone will agree on in mind, and that is our determination that human exploration beyond Earth orbit uh, should be revitalized and continue and, uh, uh, if anything, encouraged. All right, Lou, we'll watch for uh, the results of that uh, workshop, which just took place uh, barely a week ago uh, at the Planetary Society website, planetary.org, and perhaps we'll get an update uh, here on Planetary Radio. Uh, as promised, after we take a quick break, we're going to let you put David Warmflash on the phone, one of the principal investigators in the Gobbs experiment, and we'll let you go back to uh, maybe uh, helping to pry the experiment out of its container. Got to go get my hammer and chisel and uh, start <laughs> pounding on that box. Thanks very much, so, uh, uh, Thank you, and uh, yeah, do talk to uh, Dr. Warmflash about the uh, about uh, the Gobbs experiment, and indeed about the science that they're looking forward to, to doing on this. Will do. Thank you very much, Lou. Lou Friedman is the executive director of the Planetary Society. Planetary Radio will continue right after this. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. You can learn about these adventures and exciting new discoveries from space exploration in the Planetary Report. The Planetary Report is the Society's full-color magazine. It's just one of many member benefits. You can learn more by calling 1-877-PLANETS. 
That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. And you can catch up on space exploration news and developments at our exciting and informative website, planetarysociety.org. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Dr. David Warmflash, one of the co-principal investigators in the Gobbs experiment, joins us on the phone now. David, this is your, your third appearance on the show. A bit happier than your last one, I think. Well, the last one, as I remember, was just uh, the day after the crash or That's the right. day of the crash, something like day that. Day after, I believe. Um, it was, the only way you could go from that is uh, up. And, in fact, uh, you have. I, I oh, con- yeah. I, congratulations to you and the team. On uh, what I, I said as I was talking to Lou is is really not much short of a miraculous recovery of uh, your experiment. Uh, what we hope will still have the results that you can recover from the Gobbs experiment. Can you tell us a little bit? Just review for us what Gobbs is all about. Well, uh, Gobbs stands for growth of, of uh, bacterial biofilms on uh, surfaces during spaceflight. Now, what do we mean by surfaces? We're talking about little tiny chips of uh, basalt rock material, which is the same type of material that makes up the kind of meteorites that have traveled from Mars to Earth. Now, a biofilm is a uh, an arrangement in biology wherein you have uh, different species of bacteria living together side by side and kind of growing on a surface like that and sort of sharing nutrients and forming uh, kind of a matrix uh, outside the cells, um, which they share as well, kind of like the stuff that forms on your teeth when, when you, when mm. you uh, don't brush them enough and, and plaque builds up. Plaque is a biofilm. But what's, uh, the advantage of that in astrobiology, or if we're thinking of the possibility of life uh, transferring from planet to planet in uh, meteorites, is it actually can protect the organisms and maybe help them to survive the harsh conditions of space. What we wanted to see in this shuttle experiment was to check one condition, that's the condition of weightlessness, just to see if weightlessness makes a difference in terms of the bacteria ability to form biofilms on this basalt material, the material of the meteorites. What is it that gives you hope that uh, the results have not been spoiled by the heat, by the impact that uh, the experiment carrier have uh, have undergone? Well, we have to look at what factors could spoil the results, and we don't know yet. And I want to emphasize we don't know if they're spoiled or not. It might, it might, we might very well find that as we open up this device to look at the wells themselves. The wells are the little holes in which uh, the uh, reagents and the little rock materials were put before the flight. Now, what could, what could complicate the results? The first thing that could complicate it is if our control samples are confused with the samples uh, that are exposed to the bacteria. Mm. In the space flight, some of the samples were exposed to the bacteria cultures, but for comparison, we didn't, we had some which were not exposed to bacteria and were just exposed to the nutrient solution uh, in which we had these bacteria cultures just to make sure that uh, we're not seeing just a buildup of that uh, on, uh, when we look with the electron microscope. Now, if some of the little rock chips, um, which are designated to be in a certain wells, uh, if they ended up mixed with rocks, uh, let's say control rail rocks and uh, bacteria-exposed rocks, 
end up in the same wells because part of the device was shifted over. So things from uh, some wells ended up in uh, wells where they're not supposed to be. Then you wouldn't have a way to tell those apart. But uh, as far as we can see so far, on one of the two blocks that was removed, there was no shifting, so there would not have been transfer material. On the other, there's it slid over, but only about halfway, and we have to see if that allowed for these things, uh, which were are about a millimeter across, to to move into the wrong well from the one in which they're supposed to be. That's that's the for us for our experiment. That's the most serious. A complication. There are some other small ones, but that's the major one. Sounds like you're encouraged. Yes, but it, it, there are some others, as I mentioned, near the edges, uh, near the sides and near the uh, front and the back of the long way. It looks like there might be some melting of uh, a little bit of plastic material. Now, the wells are not made out of plastic. They're made out of something called Deldron, which is like Teflon, so it can survive a high temperature, but there's some plastic material from the outside that, that might have uh, interfered with wells that are near the end. But we're spread out through a lot of wells. So it might, in the end, have to do with seeing uh, out of uh, the, the 20 or 25 wells that we have distributed between controls and bacteria-exposed samples if we get enough of each one so that we can really get some useful data out of it. I think there's a good chance we'll get some of them recovered. I certainly hope so. Where are these wells? Where are these samples headed? You mentioned an electron microscope, so obviously to a lab. Yeah, what will happen is, uh, is, provided we get that out between today and tomorrow, actually I'll, I have very little small test tubes, and we'll transfer the, the uh, little solid materials into the test tubes with a little bit of the preservative that's in there with them just to make sure nothing else grows on them in the meantime. Um, so we know we're not looking for something that grew on Earth. And then, then those will go with us uh, back back to Houston, actually a little diversion to San Antonio for the uh, Aerospace Medicine Conference, where we're going directly after that. And then we will, um, over the next few weeks, they'll be examined with Dr. David McKay of the uh, NASA Johnson Space Center Astrobiology Institute with a process called scanning electron microscopy, mm. which is a type of electron microscopy that gives you a three-dimensional picture. And we'll just uh, basically take the pictures and then we'll analyze them together with the whole team in Tel Aviv. And we'll do that with uh, the two students, Yuval Landau, who's a student in Tel Aviv University, and Tariq Adwan, who is a student in, in Pennsylvania, but he's from Bethlehem uh, in the West Bank, and he will, will, will bring him into Israel. And everybody on the science team, Aaron Shanker and I and, and two students, will go through and we'll analyze the electron micrographs, and we'll begin to uh, see if we have anything, if weightlessness makes a difference in the biofilm formation. That's all if we get uh, enough of these samples recovered. David, I'm glad you brought up the two students who've been such an important part of this experiment. Have you been in touch with them? Yeah, I've been in uh, touch with both of them uh, over the last week. I uh, found they're very, they're very excited about the prospect of getting something out of this whole tragedy. We all know that um, this is kind of a bittersweet outcome, as, as Lou mentioned just now. Uh, on the other hand, the, the accidents already happened, the astronauts are gone. We're, we're mourning them. Uh, we can't go back in time, but 
one of the things that the astronauts emphasized was their interest in the science. This was a science mission and that they felt a part of the science. So in a way, for those of us involved in the science, our relationship with the astronauts was, this was a, a, one, of the, one of the focal points of that relationship. So in that aspect of their lives, and it is a, a just one aspect, but uh, that, that is sort of maybe a way uh, for them to live on, that, that something to which they contributed can go on and, and contribute to human society and the advancement of human knowledge in that way. And in that way, I think that they, they will live forever. David, we'll have to call it quits there. I want to wish you uh, the best of luck, uh, continuing luck, with this uh, amazing turn of events. And uh, again, we will follow uh, the, the progress with the recovery of the Gobbs experiment at the Planetary Society website, planetary.org. And I suspect we'll uh, probably have you back again uh, before too long, I hope, here on Planetary Radio. We'll be very happy to come back, uh, especially if we, we do get some results. David Warmflash is a co-principal investigator on the Gobbs experiment. He is uh, at the Kennedy Space Center, Cape Canaveral, Florida, with uh, Lou Friedman of the Planetary Society, in the process of freeing this experiment from its container, which survived the uh, crash of the Space Shuttle Columbia. Planetary Radio will continue in just a moment. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. Diamond rainfall on Uranus and Neptune is just one example of an environment in our solar system that could never exist on Earth. There are plenty of other strange places in the solar system. Our sister planet Venus's carbon dioxide atmosphere is so thick that it behaves more like the ocean than the sky. If you were able to stand the crushing pressure on the surface of Venus, you wouldn't be able to see far through the dense air, and you'd feel the constant gentle push of fluid currents. The largest moon in the solar system, Titan, is a world unto itself with a thick atmosphere that probably hides oceans of liquid methane or ethane. If you could stand on Jupiter's moon, Io, you would witness constant fire fountains of volcanic eruptions. The lava, ejected directly into the cold vacuum of space, would quickly quench into rounded glass droplets and rain back onto the surface. And because Io is tidally locked with Jupiter, the enormous planet would always appear to sit in the same place in the sky, a giant striped ball 40 times wider than the moon appears in our sky. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org, and you may hear it answered by a leading space scientist or expert. Be sure to provide your name and how to pronounce it, and tell us where you're from. And now, here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is here with What's Up. Bruce, what uh, mysterious and romantic locale do we find you in this week? Well, this week I'm talking to you excitedly from my home. Oh, that is romantic and mysterious indeed. <laughs> so what's up? And let's keep it that way. <laughs> what's up? We've got uh, our, our four, four planets, Saturn and Jupiter in the evening sky, Jupiter being the really easy one to spot in the evening, brightest thing in the sky. Venus is uh, low just before sunrise, but extremely bright in the east, and Mars you'll find in the southeast uh, around dawn, looking orangish, reddish in the sky. We also, for some of you with the right equipment, can view Mercury this week on May 7th. There is a transit, what is called a transit of Mercury, 
where Mercury crosses between us and the sun, and so it transits across the face of the sun. Uh, this is visible only with uh, telescopes with the proper solar filter, but if you have that, you can do this. Otherwise, it's mm. a dangerous thing to do. And you can look for, you need the details of times and things like that. I won't go into. You can find on many sites, including skyandtelescope.com. But the, uh, oh, the other interesting piece is basically it, it's great if you live in, in a lot of, <laughs> half the world, including Europe and uh, Asia, Australia. It's really not visible from the Americas particularly, except a little bit from the north, say the northeast U.S. and uh, eastern Canada. So that would appear as a spot through the, the telescope going across the disk of the sun. These things don't happen too often. We also have something else this week, yet another in my continuing reports on LAMO meteor showers. <laughs> We've got the Eta Aquarids, and if you're in the northern hemisphere, I would just ignore them. If you're in the southern hemisphere, you might see something decent, a, a couple dozen or, or more meteors, and this would be on May 5th and 6th, the night of May 5th and 6th, the Eta Aquarids. Now, the interesting thing about these meteors <clears throat> is that this meteor shower is from stuff left from Halley's Comet that are, that's in the orbit of Halley's Comet. The Earth crosses Halley's Comet's orbit twice a year. So it's just a trail of crud out there, and uh, this is uh, one one half of that crud. This is half of the crud. We'll get back to the other half a little later in the show. Ah. On to this week in space history, May 5th, 1961. Really big day for uh, the American space program. Alan Shepard made a suborbital flight above the Freedom 7 Mercury spacecraft to become the first American in space. Which leads us to random space fact. A space shuttle and its boosters ready for launch are the same height as the Statue of Liberty, but weigh almost three times as much. Wow. Since um, <laughs> the Statue of Liberty is hollow, I'm, I'm one of those people who's uh, climbed around inside it, and uh, the space shuttle is, uh, is not hollow. This takes us on to uh, our trivia contest. Uh, let's start with um, where we were last week. Last week's question, what type of ship is in the Planetary Society's logo, including nationality? How'd we do on this, Matt? Well, we and the audience did pretty well. Uh, we had, uh, everyone got it right, except for one person who said it looked like a Spanish galleon, and this happened to be a guy who wrote to us from Spain. So I, I, I'm not saying there was any bias there, but everybody else got it right, and the correct answer is... A Dutch caravel. Now, how would people have found that? Well, the cleanest way would be to look on our website and it's discussed. But if you are into ships of the sailing eras of the 16th, 17th centuries or so, then you would recognize it as a caravel based upon its uh, structure and number of sails and such. Uh, the Dutch part would be a little tougher to figure out, and we have been told before it does look a little like a Spanish caravel. However, not a Spanish galleon, but it is a deemed to be a Dutch caravel from the original discussion of what the logo of the Planetary Society should be. Well, our winner, chosen randomly from all the correct answers, is Wanda Banks. Wanda Banks of Southern Pines, North Carolina. Congratulations. You'll be getting this week's prize. And, Bruce, I'm not sure it's going to be a Carl Sagan Memorial Station T-shirt anymore uh, because we're about out of them. It might be a Mars 3D poster. Or I've got a couple of pencils in my office if that doesn't work. Well, we'll throw them in. They can go into the middle of the poster tube if we have to, I guess. Okay, they're kind of small. Okay, but there always will be a prize always. for the winner. Always. Speaking of which, this coming week, answer the following question to win the mystery prize. 
What is the other meteor shower that is also Halley's Comet crud? The Earth passes through Halley's Comet's orbit twice a year. Once is the Eta Aquarids that are happening right now. There is another meteor shower later in the year. What is its name? Go to planetary.org, follow the links to Planetary Radio, and let us know what you think. Commentary crud. I think this is more merchandise the society will be able to sell in little vials. <laughs> get the answer right, and who knows? Maybe you'll get some commentary crud. <laughs> Bruce Betts is with us every week with What's Up. Bruce, we will uh, speak to you again next time, and uh, you'll have much more for us in this uh, feature we call What's Up. We will indeed, and remember, look up in the night sky and think about commentary crud. With that, I say thank you and good night. <laughs> Bruce Betts is the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. That's it for this week's Planetary Radio. Let us know what you think of the show. Our email address is planetaryradio, all one word, at planetary.org. See you next time.